The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You guys have your Bibles. We're in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book. If you haven't been here, we're going to do a little bit of background. After Ezra, before Esther, uh, towards the back, um, while you guys are flipping there, I'll get you kind of up to speed on uh, what we've been talking about. Nehemiah is a killer book. It's definitely been an adventure, I would say. It's an adventurous book. Uh, a lot has happened. We've learned a lot of things. A guy named Nehemiah, a Jewish man, who was uh, captive, was a slave, uh, carried away, uh, just like the rest of his people by the Babylonian Empire, rose to a position of actual great authority, which is awesome. Uh, when the Babylonian Empire became the Persian Empire, Nehemiah, our character, was actually the cupbearer to the king, which means that he was responsible for testing and tasting all the drinks for the king, which is awesome. Great job. Well, he gets news, as you guys know, that his homeland, Jerusalem, back in the nation of Israel, is in ruins. The walls are broken down. The city has been burned. The people are spread. Israel, which was once this mighty, great nation, God's nation, is scattered abroad. They've been conquered. They've been taken away for many and many and many years. So Nehemiah, while he's in this position, he gets this word that his home city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. It sits on his heart heavy. He has to do something about it. So he does. He goes to the king. He petitions King Artaxerxes, asks him if he can go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to start uh, a project to rebuild and and bring structure to the city and, and to bring it back, hopefully, to what it once was. Uh, God gives Nehemiah favor in the king's eyes. He goes back, makes the journey back to the city, comes up with a plan, gets everybody together, rallies all of the princes, all of the rulers of the land, and they begin to build the walls. If you guys remember, of course, with anything that we do for the kingdom, there was opposition that came, great opposition. Uh, lots of people didn't want to see Jerusalem be rebuilt. Um, all of the, basically, all of the neighboring nations came against him. But because God is good, the walls were finished. The walls were built. We've seen all that so far. After the walls were built, they pulled the law of Moses okay, out, and they began to read it out loud, as was Jewish tradition. And as they read it, conviction began to take place. If you guys remember, uh, Israel, uh, Jerusalem began to feel conviction and begin to remember what it was like to walk in the law of the Lord, to obey God. And so what happened in, verse nine, or in chapter 9 last week, uh, they begin to um, confess and repent of all the things that they had done, how they had basically gotten to this point uh, as a nation. And in chapter 10, as we'll see, they begin to talk about what the covenant is that they're going to re-enter into. So let's read that together. Uh, chapter 10. We're actually going to pick it up in verse 28 uh, and just read it through. So if you would read it with me. Uh, if you need a Bible, by the way, guys, there's a shelf over there that has tons of Bibles. And if you need one and you want to keep it, that's a gift to you. Uh, there's ESV and uh, some New Believers Bibles over there as well. So Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 28, says this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, his rules, and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. 
We bind ourselves to bring first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Verse 36. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions. The first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. The people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain wine, and the oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is God's word in Nehemiah chapter 10. So again, I know that's a lot, and a lot of that was a lot of confusing things. Uh, here's basically the summation of chapter 10, okay? They've been convicted by the law. They're repentant. They've confessed to God. And now they're saying, here is the law that we are going to replace ourselves under in covenant, okay? If you guys remember, we talked about it last week, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God entered into with man, with Israel, through Moses on the mountain. We're entering back into that covenant, and here's the specific things that we're going to do, as they said, uh, to restate this covenant with the Lord. That's what chapter 10 is stating. Now, question, why is Israel called to obey the law? Why did God give Israel this seemingly random group and list of laws that they are to abide by? Okay, now the first reason, of course, would be to point to Christ. Okay, the laws to point to Christ. But secondly, and, and, and for our reasons tonight, God gave Israel the law so that they could be set apart, so that they could be different. You look at some of the laws, you look at some of the things that God told Israel to do, dietary restrictions, uh, how they were to uh, marry, how they were to uh, be politically, how they were to have um, all, all kinds of things. All of them were given, so ultimately Israel would be a set-apart nation, would be a different nation from the others. The word holy, which is used many times in the Old Testament, is actually to be set apart. Okay? God is holy because God is set apart. There is no one like God. No one is like him. Therefore, he is holy. Therefore, he is set apart. God gave Israel the law so that they might be like him, so that they might be set apart, so that they might be different. Now, God's intent for his people, whether that be Israel or whether that be you and I tonight, is always that we would be different. It's always that we would be set apart. It's always that we would be unique. He set us apart for a reason. That's why holiness is a big deal, that we would be like him, that we would be different than the world. If you look at verse 28 of our text, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, etc., separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to what? The law of God. They were separated to the law of God. They were different. They were called to be different. Now, we are called as a church to be different as well. We're called to be separate from culture, called to be separate from the rest of the world. Romans 12, 2, if you guys know, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That Greek word there, metamorpho, it's, it's, it's literally a complete transformation. God wants to take us from being one identity to being a completely different identity, that we would be completely separate, that our minds would be renewed and transformed. 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, okay? We're set apart nation. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about us being salt, being light, which is implicit that, that salt is different. That salt is added to something bland to give it flavor. That light is to be shown in the dark to show that it's different. So the question is, and what I want to talk about tonight, is what does it look like to be different? What does difference actually look like for the church specifically right now? Now listen, we're in a funny time in America right now, okay? We all watch the news. We all know what's going on. We're all talking about it. Every three days or every day, there's something coming up that is challenging how we live as Christians in this culture. There's something coming up. There's 
marijuana legalization, okay, in Oregon. Okay, how do we deal with that now as Christians? One of, one of our pastors, Jeremy, is already trying to, he's trying to put together sort of a stance for our church. Where do we fall on this view? Where do we fall on this? Because it's, it's an argument, because it's something that the world is now embracing. And we as the church have to figure out how do we stay set apart when this is now something accepted by our culture? Homosexual marriages come up, right? Federally, in our entire country. And we have to figure out as Christians, how do we stay set apart? How do we stay holy? What does that look like when our culture has embraced something that we know is biblically wrong, right? How do we stay holy? How do we stay set apart? Uh, every week it's something. Businesses being sued over gay marriage. Abortion. Hundreds of thousands of babies being murdered all the time. How do we as Christians in a culture that embraces such sin and such evil, how do we remain set apart? How do we remain holy? How much do we do? What do we do? Where do we fight? How do we fight? Those are the questions everyone's asking. Uh, In Oregon now, you can be 15 years old and get a sex change and the government will pay for it. How do we remain set apart in this country? What do we do about that? How do we address that? Homosexual leaders can be Boy Scouts now. We found that out yesterday, right? Every day, it's something that we have to deal with. We have to figure out how do we remain holy? How do we remain set apart in a culture that is in post-Christendom and is heading towards or already at secularism? That is not thinking about what is holy, not thinking about what is right, and what are we as Christians, what's our responsibility there? And that's what I want to talk about tonight, okay? Questions like, what hill do we die on? Is the homosexual thing, is that the hill we want to die on? (laughs) Is the transgender thing, is that the hill that we want to die on? Uh, Does fighting these things further the gospel? These are all questions that are coming up uh, in conversations I'm having seemingly all the time. Um, Is fighting the world's lusts for sin how we should be different? Questions like that. Should we bake the cake? Should we bake the cake? Have you guys had that conversation yet? Would you bake the cake? Or would you not to bake the cake? The, the, the Christians that got sued up north for baking a cake, that's the big debate. That's the big question. And, and the question, essentially, at its very bare roots, is how do we stay holy? How do we stay set apart? How do we stay righteous in a wicked land? Okay, how do we do that? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And I want to use this text that we just read, chapter 10, to try to sort of answer those questions. I think a good place to start, a good place to start is to eliminate some things. What is it not to be set apart? Okay, what does it not mean to be set apart? And I think some of these might surprise you. Some of them are exactly what the church is doing, and it's not what God ever, had ever called us to do. What does it not mean to be set apart? First of all, being holy, being set apart in our culture is not leaving the world. Okay, it's not leaving the world. It's not bailing out and saying, uh, or leaving this country for that matter. Okay, it's not saying, yeah, this country's gotten too bad. Too much moral decline, we're out of here, okay? Let's just all go, we just know, I just wish I was in heaven, I wish I wasn't here. What did, John, what did Jesus pray in John 17? When he was in the garden, he said, I pray not that you would take them out, right? But that you would strengthen them. His desire is not that we would be out of our culture. So wherever that is, whether that's in Babylon, whether that's in, uh, in Daniel's time when he had to live under King Darius and King Nebuchadnezzar and these wicked kings, whether that's Paul's time when he had to live under the wicked government of the Romans, whether that's our time in this country, Okay, whatever it is, we are called to live in the culture that we are in. So you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Okay? The, 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 being holy and being set apart is not running away. It's not leaving the culture. It's living within the culture. Secondly, being set apart is not hating the world. Okay? And let me quantify what I mean by world. It's not hating the people that are passing these laws. It's not hating these homosexuals that are pushing all of these things. It's not hating the people that are, that, are, that are doing these abortions, it's not that at all, okay? That's not what's being set apart. It's not hating them. It's not leaving the world. Thirdly, it's not judging the world, okay? It's not, ju- it's not sitting here and just, and just drawing lines and saying, yeah, you're on that side, we're on this side, let's duke it out. Uh, it's not being weird just to be weird, okay? A lot of Christians think that being set apart, being holy is just being strange, saying really cheesy Christian things so everyone thinks that you're weird. That's not being holy. That's not being set apart, okay? Um, It's not hiding in the church. I can't say that one enough. Oh, culture's getting bad. We just need to have more church services. Culture's getting bad, man. We just need to spend more time in church. That's not true, 
Okay, it's not hiding in church. It's not running away. It's none of those things. What I want to do is I want to look at three things that are in our text that I believe, not all of them, we're not going to cover everything that it is to be set apart and to be holy, but three things that are in our text that I believe are extremely important for us to remember when it, when it, when it comes to being holy, when it comes to being set apart. Um, the last three days I just went backpacking uh, with my, my father-in-law and my dad and a friend, and we went out to uh, Umpqua, uh, South Umpqua Forest. Just for three days, it was amazing. Just peaceful. We didn't see a single person the whole time. It was amazing. Um, just sitting around the lake, it's so quiet, so beautiful. And it's amazing how in those few days of that, you, just, you feel like you get clarity and perspective because so much of what you do is like staring at this thing. And so much of what you do is just getting from one point to the other and fighting traffic and getting through the red lights and it's so busy and it's so consumed and then you get home and you're frustrated. You flip on the news and you hear about another thing, another thing that you get irritated about. And you don't have a lot of clarity, you don't have a lot of perspective, but I noticed when I was out there and I was spending time with the Lord in the, in the woods or whatever, not to try to sound like a hippie or something, but, you know, not there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, I, I noticed that I had like this clarity and this perspective about these. And the reason why is because we need the simplicity of God's truth sometimes to answer these questions. Sometimes we get so into the minutia of the political, how, what do we do? How, should we veto this? Should we, what do we do? And we just need the, the simple clarity zoomed out. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at the word and say, God, what does it look like to be holy? And we're going to go do it tomorrow. What does it look like to be set apart? And we're going to go live it out, okay? Number one. So if you're taking notes, number one, and we're going to, again, we're going to pull this from the text. Number one, a set apart, set apart people have, number one, changed desires. Okay, to be set apart, to be holy is to have changed desires. This is sort of the why behind the what, okay? This is the why behind the what. If you look at verse 32 of our text, it says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. Okay, just that right there. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly. There's something here that's changed in Israel, okay? They are humbled, they were once a great nation, and they have been spread abroad, carried out of their land, conquered and conquered and conquered, and they're humbled, and now they're returning to God, and they're choosing to put themselves back into the law, not because they won't have to, okay? Listen, not because they have to, but because they want to. They're saying, we're choosing. We are putting ourselves and obliging ourselves to sign this contract to put ourselves back in the law. So the very core of what they're doing is not something that they have to do, but it's something that they want to do. I want you to remember that, okay? Desires, okay, the desires that you and I have, the things that you and I want, the things that we shoot for in life, that we aim for, those are the engines that drive us. Did you know that? They're the engines that drive us. Desires are all of our actions. God designed us that way, Okay? Think about some of the things that people, I was just trying to make a list of, of just a few things that people have done in this world that I cannot believe that they did. Okay, how, did, how in the world did we get to the moon? You ever think about that? I know some of you are like, oh, we didn't actually go. No, seriously though, how, how did we get there? I mean, it's insane to think about the fact that we made it to the moon. A hundred years ago, if you told someone, yeah, we, we actually flew and, and walked on the moon, they would think you were insane. How did we get from that point to that point? Desire. Somebody or some people had desire to do something and to see something happen, and that desire carried them far. That was the engine that caused them to do great things. When I was in Israel, we went to the Territ of, Hem uh, of Hempel. The he wow. Herod's Temple. Territ of Hempel. Um, man, I need to sleep more. Uh, we went to Herod's Temple, which, by the way, you have to really almost go underground to see some of the original stones. Um, you go down there, and I have a picture of, uh, of Wayne McKenzie, one of, one of our uh, chair guys here. He, he's never, not a very big guy, but um, I have a picture of him in front of one of the stones at the, at the bottom of the temple. And this thing's like the size, was it two buses, Terry? Am I telling a fish story? Was it, two? It, it was at least a bus size stone. One stone that was at least the size of a bus, okay? Like a school bus, full size. And you're looking at this thing, and you're like, how in the world did they get this stone into Jerusalem? Okay, and they didn't hewn it there. They brought it in from somewhere else, and they don't even know how they got it there. I'll tell you how they got it there. They got it there because 
Some guy named Herod had a lot of power, and he had a lot of desire to be the most powerful person around and to leave a monument that everyone would think he was awesome. It was desire. He had this desire to see himself glorified in this temple called Herod's Temple, and he did it very well. I can't pronounce their name, but Giannis Koros from Greece. Okay, I don't know who they are, but they ran 182 miles nonstop. That's the record, the world record. Can you imagine that? 182 miles nonstop. How does somebody do that? They have a desire that they can't get rid of, that they can't shake, that they can't kick, and they'll do anything to fulfill that desire. It could kind of go on and on. I'm not going to because I think I made my point. Desire is the engine that drives us to do good or bad things. What caused Hitler to kill six million Jews? He had a desire to rule the world. He had a desire to impose his ideology on the entire world, and so he would kill six million Jews. He would have done more if he could have. Okay? What would stop him? What was driving him? Desire. He had a desire to do something that he thought would fulfill him, that would give him pleasure, that would give him joy, and he would do anything for it. My mom always said, and my mom's wise, people basically do exactly what they want to do. And isn't, have you found that to be true? People basically do exactly what they want to do. We will spend the majority of our time, of our money, of our thoughts doing the things that we want to do, the things that we desire to do, the things that we think will make us the most happy. Now, behavior change has to come from desire change. Behavior change has to come from desire change. We cannot expect for our behavior to just change unless what we desire changes. The set-apart believer does not just do the right thing. Okay? The set-apart believer doesn't just do the right thing, just doesn't pull himself up by his own bootstraps and, and, and have enough gunction, have enough uh, you know, you know, self-will to do what's right. The, 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 the born-again, set-apart believer loves the right thing. He doesn't just do the right thing. He loves the right thing. He wants to do the right thing because he loves the right thing. And this is what we need to be set apart on. The world doesn't need a person that's doing something hard because he thinks he's going to get joy from it. The world needs somebody that's doing something because he loves it. People don't need to see religious people doing religious things so that they can feel good about themselves. People in the world need to see people doing things for the Lord because they love the Lord because they love to do and because their desires have been changed. It's kind of like my daughter, you know, she's one and a half. And uh, we're working on this desire thing, you know. I mean, she, she has a stubborn will and she wants things her way. Sometimes, you know, we get in the fridge and she wants a snack and we say, no snack right now, and she throws herself on the ground, you know. And then it's this big, long thing, and you need to say you're sorry, and she won't say she's sorry. We, we're just, you know, and sometimes she'll just say sorry, and we know she's not sorry, though. It's like we know she's just faking it. So she'll say it to me. She'll say, sorry, Mom, and she's talking to me, and I'm like, I know you're not sorry because you're just repeating what your mom makes you say, telling me, sorry, Mom. She, there's no real change in desire. It's not that she really wants to please me or that she really wants to obey me. It's that she just kind of, her, her desires are still wrong. Does that make sense? The desires are the engines that will drive us. And God knew that. And God knows that. He designed us that way. He gave us those desires. And because he designed us that way, he knew that it wouldn't do to just come in and say, here's the law, do it right. He had to go deeper than that. He had to go into the desires that change the reasons why we do everything that we do. That's why we're regenerate. That's why we have to be born again. Because it's not enough to just say, you need to do more our desires, our entire core for why we do things had to be completely reborn, had to be completely changed. In Psalm 1611, the psalmist says, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist got it. He understood that God was the greatest joy, that, that his desires were set upon the Lord. Salvation is not about making a better version of you. Did you know that? It's about making a completely new version of you. It's not like God's just going to take you and tweak a couple of things. No, he needs to give you completely new desires. That's why Jesus had the conversation with, with Nicodemus when he said, you need to be born again. Okay, this pious, religious person who most people would have looked at, excuse me, most people would have looked at 
and thought that he was, if anyone could be saved, it would have been Nicodemus. And Jesus said, no, you need to be born again. Why? Not because of your, necessarily your outward appearance, but because your desires are wrong and God can do nothing with them. Your desires need to be completely changed, completely transformed. Listen, if you do not cherish the Savior, you do not have the Savior. If you do not cherish Jesus, you don't have him. That's the differential between Christians and non-Christians. Our desires have been transformed our desires have been changed. It's not just that we do better things than culture. It's that we love what is right and we love what is holy and we love God because we love him. We love him. That's ultimately what people need to see in us. So the question is, how does that set us apart? How does having changed desires set us apart? Well, I guarantee the world's not gonna see us as perfect. They'll never see us as perfect. And if that's the goal, if, it's, if the goal is to make non-believers and the people that we work with to see us as perfect, it's just not gonna happen. But what they do need to see is they need to see a war in your hearts. In Galatians 5, 17, it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. When you get saved, God gives you new desires, but your old ones are still there. And you war in your flesh daily. You war in your spirit. If anybody knows about internal warfare, it's Christians. The world needs to see that. Not that we're perfect, but that our deepest desires are God's. Our deepest desires are for what he wants, for what he wants for us. That's what the world needs to see. Secondly, how does that set us apart? It sets us apart because people need to see that the gospel is not morality. There's a difference. People need to see that the gospel is not someone just doing righteous seemingly or religious seemingly things. People need to see that you can't do it on your own and that God needs to give you new birth. Thirdly, how does it set us apart? I remember one one of the coolest compliments I ever got um, and it wasn't like, a, oh, I'm awesome compliment. It was just like, man, this guy can see the Lord in me. That's so cool. When I worked in retail and I had a, a non-believing friend there, he told me, uh, I'll never forget it. He said, he asked me some questions about uh, political stuff and he was really kind of scared about some things. And he, he said, I just wanted to ask you because you just seem like you know who you are. <laughs> and I thought, that's kind of cool. You know, not like, oh, I'm confident. I know who I am. No, because I knew what he was saying and I knew what he saw. And what he saw was somebody that knew why I existed. I knew that he saw in me that I knew why I got up in the morning. He saw in me, I knew why I did everything that I did. It was all for a reason, and it was a reason outside of myself. And that's what the world needs to see in us. They need to see not that we're perfect, not that we do everything right, but that our desires, our deepest desires, the engine that drives us is for him. That's what they need to see, that we're transformed in what we want, what we long for is different. And the next point stems out of that. Look, it's, uh, point number two, set apart people. Set apart people have number two, changed value system. If you're taking notes, number two is changed value system. So not only do we have changed desires, but we're, we should have changed value system. Take a look at verse 35 in our text. It says, we bind or we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God. The firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough. Not money, it's like, I think it's not dough like money. It's a joke. Uh, you guys can laugh. It's, it'd make me feel better. I'd pre- okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, the priests to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our guard, from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. So what happened here in Israel is in their humbled state, again, in their repentant state, they had a value change. Not only did they have a desire change, they had a value change. What they valued changed. It took losing absolutely everything that they had to realize that they never had anything in the first place. 
It took losing everything that they had to realize that everything was God's in the first place. And I don't find it by any accident that when they begin to list off the things that they want to enter in back, back into doing for the Lord, not out of obligation, but out of worship, that one of the first things that they begin to talk about and talk about over and over and over again is that they want to give God the first fruits of everything in their life. That they want to give him the best. That's what the first fruits means. That means you give him the best that you have. Jesus said something, oh, he said a lot about this. But he said one thing in specific. Remember, he said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Okay, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, what did he, why did he say that? He said that because whatever you're investing yourself into, whatever you're putting yourself into continually, you're doing that because you value it. Okay, that's just, that's just obvious truth. Okay, I obviously value my kids. I value my wife. So I'm going to put time. I'm going to put effort into them. Wherever uh, the, the majority of myself goes into is obviously the thing that I value the most. It's just sort of common sense. And Jesus is just pointing that out. So the, 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 the funny thing about money is, and it may not just be money, just be your possessions. The funny thing about your possessions is, is where the majority of that stuff goes is very telling of where your desires are and very telling of what is valuable to you, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have hobbies. It doesn't mean we can't work on our garden. It doesn't mean we can't fix up cars. But the funny thing is, is Jesus says, if you really want to know what you value the most, look at what you spend the most on. Look at not just money, what, what do you spend the most time on? What do you think about? What do you go to bed thinking about? What do you wake up thinking about? What are you, what are you constantly focused on? Whatever that is, that is the most valuable thing in your life. And some of you guys, like myself, that's scary to think about. Because there's a lot of things that we all think about a lot that have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Nothing to do with Jesus. There's a really cool story, you might have heard it. A rich young man walks up to Jesus, and, and he wasn't just rich, okay? He was affluent. That means he was... He was uh, high up in society, he was smart, he was educated, he was probably good looking, he was probably strong, he was, he was sort of like this dominant guy that had a lot of money, a lot of things going for him, and he comes up to Jesus and he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to go to heaven? Okay. Now in that moment, Jesus, who has all wisdom, right, and all the universe, he looks at that guy and he doesn't just see, you know, he doesn't just see a guy, he looks through and he sees a cancer, okay, like an x-ray, Okay, he sees a cancer, and in that cancer, it's not a real physical cancer. It's actually, it's a cancer of loving his stuff and loving his life. And so Jesus says something to him that he doesn't necessarily say to anyone else in that same way because not anyone else really has that specific cancer that we see. This guy has a specific cancer. Jesus speaks to it. He says, you want to follow me? You want to go to heaven? Here's what you got to do. You got to change your value system. Your value system is backwards. Right now, everything that you have and everything that you value is wrapped up in yourself and your position. Why don't you go sell all that, get rid of all that, and then come value me more? So you notice he doesn't just say go sell everything you have and go work at a charity. No, just sell everything you have and then follow me. And what he's saying is get rid of the stuff and then value me more. Value me more than your position and your possessions. That's what he's saying. He's addressing the cancer. And what does the rich young ruler prove to us and show to us by his response to how Jesus addresses that cancer? He, he reveals where his heart lays. His heart is where his treasure is. Because when Jesus says, come follow me, sell everything you have, he goes away sorrowful, right? He goes away sorrowful. And that reveals in that moment right there that his value system was not the way it should be. He saw Jesus as less valuable than continuing down the path of life that he was on. I think all of us have those moments, those determining moments where Jesus says, am I more valuable than this? Am I more valuable than this? You look at the early church, right? One of the first things that they did after Jesus died and sent the Holy Spirit and people began to be reborn and get these new desires and their value system changed, they said, you know what? Let's sell everything that we have and give it to each other and just take care of each other, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to do that, but what it means is that they had a switch of value system. They said, you know what? We don't really care about our stuff anymore. What we care about is Jesus and each other, so let's sell everything we have and just take care of each other. What that's proving, what's that sh what that's showing is that they value Jesus more than they value their stuff. It's basically what's that, what that's showing. No, why does Jesus talk more about money in the Bible than almost, almost any other subject? 
It's not because he was some prosperity teacher. It's not because he was interested in being rich, obviously. Jesus talked about money more in the Bible because, as he said, it's the root of all evil. Now, money isn't the root of all evil. What is? The love of money. It's not money itself that's the root of all. It's the love of money. Why is that? Listen, money reveals and entices the deepest issue of sin in man's heart. And that is valuing creation over the creator. Money tickles that nerve. Money tickles and entices that lust and that want that we have to make creation bigger than creator. That's exactly what money does, and Jesus knows that, so he speaks to it so much. It's why he reveals the cancer in the rich young ruler, because to become a Christian is not simply just to be reborn. It's have a, a, to have a completely different value system, that everything changes. What you value changes. What you think is important changes. All of it changes. Now, how does that set us apart? How does that make us different? Well, first of all, generosity without financial gain is really, you're not going to find it in the world. And people like to look like they are. They say, oh, the Hollywood stars, they give to charities and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and what about the guy that went over and he, everybody who is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, because only God can do it, that does anything that seems to be generous is ultimately doing it for some sort of gain back. I can honestly say that because I know the condition of man's heart. I know the condition of my heart. Even my kids seem sacrificial when I'm, I get up and, and you know, change my, my son's diaper in the middle of the night and he pees on me, you know, she's done. Um, seems sacrificial, right? But ultimately, I'm getting something back from him. I mean, he, he, he's a joy in my life. He's a source of pleasure in my life. And, and I feel like a good dad, so I feel good about myself. Everything that we do, ultimately, is for some sort of return. But the believer has a flipped value system. When you begin to say, I, I don't actually, I'm not actually gonna do something to get something, you're modeling Christ. You're modeling the gospel for people. And this is what the world needs to see from us. They need to see generosity without any expectation of return because they're not used to that. No one expects that. That's what we need to do. Secondly, how does that set us apart? Well, I just said it. It, it, it points people to the generous one. Jesus came, I said this last week, Jesus came and did something for nothing. He purchased a bride that did not deserve it. He spent everything he had and got nothing back. He gave us his righteousness and took his, he gave us his righteousness and took our sinfulness. It's completely unfair. It's completely undeserving. So when we're generous, when we say, I'm gonna value someone else over myself or my stuff, you're, you're modeling the gospel for people. And number three, and we'll close, we'll close with this. Number three, we're set apart not only by a changed value system, not only by a changed set of desires, but we are changed, we're, we're set apart by a changed source of life. A changed source of life. Look at verse 30 and 31. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. What are they saying here? What they're saying is that in choosing to obey God, in choosing to put ourselves, to submit ourselves under his law, to be different, to be set apart, we are changing the source that we look for for life. What they're saying is that we will not trade our daughter, we will not marry outside of our nation, and we will not trade or do any kind of bargaining or buy-in or sell out anything on the Sabbath day. And what are they proving by doing that? They're proving a couple of things. First of all, they're proving that they aren't looking to the world to be their source, okay? They say, we don't need to trade on the Sabbath day. Why? Because we trust God. We don't need to trade and, and, and make business happen on the day that God said to rest. Why? Because we trust him that he's going to take care of us. So it's like if, if somebody says, yeah, I work seven days a week. Is that sinful? I would say, well, it's not necessarily sinful that you're not keeping the Sabbath anymore, but it's sinful because you're not trusting God. It's sinful because you're saying, I have to go work seven days a week because God will not take care of me otherwise. I have to go plow my field. And what Israel is saying is they're saying, we refuse to be like the other nations and we trust God that he's going to make that up for us. 
They have a changed source of life. They're not looking to the world to be that anymore, and they're choosing to be set apart. They're choosing to be different. Now, for us, he is to be our source of life. Guys, we, I can't say this enough. Like, we live in a culture that is obsessed with pleasure and obsessed with, with, with distracting ourselves from the fact that we're dying and starving and depressed. Like anything and everything that'll distract us, whether it's five minutes or five seconds or five hours, anything that'll distract us from the fact that we are lifeless and thirsty and depressed, we'll take it, we'll do it, whether it's a drug or a show or a click on the mouse, whatever it is, anything that will distract us, we're obsessed with it because ultimately we all know that we're dying and we're hungry. What's our source of life? What Israel's saying here is they're saying we're not going to look to the things that the world looks to for life. We're going to choose God to be our life. Now, how do I know? Okay, how do we know if God is our source of life? How do we know if Jesus is really the thing that we gain and, and get life from? Well, here's a few questions. How much of our life or your life, how much of our life and joy and energy comes from the things of this world? I mean, quantify that. So how much of what makes you get through your day are the things that, that you get excited about? How, how much is, it, is, is, is food? How much of it is, is, is pleasure? It's vacation. It's getting through the weekend. It's having the evening. It's watching your favorite show. It's, it's taking that trip. It's doing that recreation thing. It's doing that sport. Now, I'm not saying that stuff's bad. I'm just saying how much of what makes you tick through the day is actually Jesus and your personal time relationship with him and how much of it is just like that next distraction. Okay, like I'm gonna eat a big breakfast and I gotta go to work, but then I got my break. Yeah, I got my break and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna watch my favorite show on my break. I got lunch and I'm gonna eat again. Eating's a great distraction. Then I get home, I'm gonna watch my show. That's another distraction. Then I get to sleep, that's another distraction. Then I start over. And your life is just a constant set of distractions from the fact that you're starving for life. How much of that is filled by Jesus? What gets you through your day? Here's another one. What do you run to when things get hard? What do you run to when things get bad? Is it that person that maybe has some advice? Is it, what, what is it? I mean, is it going to work more to get more money in your savings account? What is it when things go bad and you get scared? What's the first place that you run? That will tell you what your source of life ultimately is. Here's a big one and a scary one. What would you not be willing to give up for Jesus? It's a terrifying question. What would you not be willing to give up for Jesus? That will tell you what your source of life is, what you're drawing on to get through your day every day. Now listen, good, listen, good is the enemy of the best. You know that? Good is the enemy of the best. There's a lot of really good things in our country. Man, there's so many good things. There's so many good hobbies. Just pick one. There's thousands of them. Snowboarding, mountain biking, backpacking, tennis, whatever. There's so many. Taking your kids to sporting events. There's so many good things. There's so much good food in this country. There's so many good things you can do, entertainment you can watch, good books you can read. There's just so many, so many good movies we can do. So many, so many things that are good. And those good things are warring every day against the best. Explain what I mean. In John... Four, Jesus has this run and he has this conversation with a Samaritan woman. Okay? He stops at the well and he starts to have this conversation with her. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered her. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now listen to what she says. He just says, Hey, ask me and I'll give you living water. Listen to what she says. She says, The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. And what's happening here? Jesus is offering her the best. He says, I have living water for you that will quench the deepest thirst that you possibly could have forever. And she's distracted by the good, the regular water. She said, but, but you don't have a bucket. You, how are you going to get the water out? She's thinking about good. Well, water is a good thing. God made it, quenches her thirst. And Jesus is thinking about the best. And the good is distracting her from the best. Does that make sense? This is what happens. She says, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, okay, what water? Good water. 
Everyone who drinks of good water will die. What do I mean by that? It means all those things that are good in our life, being a parent is good. Being a husband is good. Working hard is good. Doing things in life to, 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 to move your life forward, to have retirement, to feel comfortable, to enjoy your friends, those are all good things, things that we should be enjoying because God made them. But those things will kill you because they're not the best thing. They're the water that makes you thirsty in three hours. Okay? As good as your kids are, as good as your wife is, as good as church is, as good as your hobbies are, as good as food is, as good as your job is, whatever they are, that's great that they're good, but they are not the best. And Jesus is saying, I have living water for you. And everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 73, 25. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Okay, what he's saying is, is it, if you're not in heaven, God, I'm in hell. Okay, if God's not in heaven, you're in hell. He said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And he said, There's nothing on this earth, not all the good things in the earth, not all the distractions in the earth, that I desire but you. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What he's saying is, what the psalmist is saying so profoundly is that, God, if you're not in heaven, I don't want to be there. God, if you're not on earth, I, want to be, I don't want to be here. I don't care how many good things, just ask Solomon, who had everything, and you read Ecclesiastes, it did nothing for him. All the good things in the world will never be the best thing. He says, I only want you. You're my portion forever. You're enough for me. Now, the, the set-apart believer has a changed source of life. The set-apart believer says, I don't look to this world for anything anymore. The set-apart believer doesn't expect anything of this world. The set-apart believer doesn't, doesn't look for anything from this world. If we enjoy a few things along the way, that's great, but we're pilgrims. We're not here to get comfortable. We're not here to vacation. We're not here to kick up our feet. Okay, so they pass a homosexual law that they can get married. What should our approach to that be? Okay, our approach should be that we're on the mission field. We got work to do. This is an opportunity. Okay, the more fleshly our culture gets, the more we shine. The more fleshly our culture gets, the more the gospel has opportunity to shine bright and to be salt. Okay, this isn't time to throw rocks at the people we're trying to save, this is time to go pick them up and pull them off the battlefield. It's time to go. It's time to move. It's time to work. It's time to bring the gospel. It's time to be salt. It's time to be light. It's time to be truth. It's time to be set apart by those three things that the world might see that we're different. We don't expect anything of the world. You know, being a Christian and being a non-Christian, we all do the same things. We're still going to get sick. Your kids are still going to get sick. You're still going to die. You, you still might lose your job. You still might run out of money. Your 401k might disappear. Your car's going to break down. All the same things are going to happen. Depression's going to come. Your wife or your husband may leave you. All the things that can happen to people in the world can happen to you. The only difference is, is that you have hope because you know this is not it for me. This is not where my hope lies. And people need to see that. People need to see when stuff hits the fan for you and for them, well, why is he still happy? Well, why does he still have joy? Because his hope's not here. Because it's in something better. It's in something that can't be stripped away. So how do we handle the moral decline of our culture? How do we stay set apart? How do we stay set apart? Just want to I'll close with this. Jude 17 through 23 is a phenomenal verse to speak to how we should be in our culture right now. Jude says this. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And he tells us what to do. He says, but you, beloved, set apart believers, right? Holy believers. He says, but you, beloved, 
building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Then he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What is Jude saying here? He says, when stuff gets bad like it is, here's what you do. First of all, remember the outcome. Remember what's going to happen. Second of all, he says, pray a lot. Pray a ton. That's what we should be doing. We should be praying a lot. He, he says, remember that you're missionaries. Okay? Can we not forget that? We're not on vacation here. We're pilgrims. We're missionaries. We have work to do, things to do. He says, save some with mercy, save others with mercy, but snatch them out of the fire and be careful that you don't get sucked into these very things that you're trying to save them from. It's just good wisdom. They will know we are Christians by our love. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Guys, my prayer just for this is that we would have clarity when we watch the news and we'd have clarity when we see the world and how it is and, how it, and what's going on and just remember what really matters, that we would remember and thank God that we have different value systems, that we have different desires, that we have a different source of life and we find hope in that, we find joy in that, Amen. Let's all stand together. God, I'm just thankful tonight for the hope that we have in you, God. I'm thankful, Lord. I'm thankful that you didn't leave me in my desires that I had before. I'm thankful that you gave me new desires, that you gave me your desires. I'm thankful, God, that you are conforming me into the image of your son, that when he comes back, we will be like him. I'm thankful tonight, God, that you are my source of life. And though I distract myself so much with good things, that you are the best thing in my life. God, if you're not in heaven, we don't want to be there. Lord, if there's something in this world that has nothing to do with you, we don't want anything to do with it. God, I pray you would make us missionaries. I pray we would have a sense of urgency as we see what's going on in the world, Lord, that we would not hide in the church. We would not wage war against those that we're supposed to be bringing the gospel to. Give us wisdom, Lord. I just pray that we would be set apart, that we would be different, that we would be holy, that our coworkers, our friends, our family members that don't know you would see a difference. And they would be drawn to that difference and they would ask about what that difference is. And we could tell them, our God gave us new hearts, new desires. Thank you, God, for being so good to us. We love you, we cherish you, we treasure you, God, above all. In Jesus' name, amen.